Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us. Busy day today. Coming up on the program, we are going to get the very latest on what's happening in the investigation in Nova Scotia. And a bit later on in the show, we are checking in with the Retail Council of Canada. After the news, people caught price gouging could face fines moving forward. But first, as you've been hearing in the news, a difficult day for workers at TransLink. The company announcing almost 1,500 workers will be temporarily laid off. There is also going to be a cut in executive pay. This as the company continues losing millions of dollars. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Ben Murphy. He is a spokesperson for TransLink. Uh, He is on the line with us now. Ben, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. How did the company come up with that number of almost 1,500 workers? Well, I suppose uh, the backdrop to all of this is the financial situation that TransLink's in, uh, losing $75 million per month. And so in that context, uh, we knew that um, decisions were going to have to be made uh, around service. And of course, for a transit agency, a large part of your your cost is, is the workforce as well. And so we looked at what service we could reduce while still ensuring that we could preserve the transit system moving forward because it is going to be vital, particularly in that uh, recovery phase when people start returning to work. Uh, And so looking at that, looking which routes we were going to either suspend or reduce frequency on uh, and making all of those assessments from a, a planning sense Uh, then some uh, layoffs, unfortunately, have had to be made today as well. It's not just um, bus drivers. uh, It affects people at TransLink uh, corporate as well, as well as uh, SkyTrain. So it is across the enterprise. Uh, Most are at Coast Mountain because that's where most of our workforce is. Uh, But a really tough day uh, and a very, very tough day for those employees affected. Um, It's not lost on us what a stress this is going to place on, on them and their families moving forward. Um, The good news is we have had some productive discussions with the province uh, over the past few days and weeks and uh, and we have their support and their commitment to assist us financially to get our service uh, back up and going in September, which is when we see that back-to-school ridership bump as well. So that's uh, where we are moving forward. Of course, we'll have to make assessments as we go, depending on the situation, because things uh, can change very quickly, as we all know. So TransLink, and I know we touched on this uh, earlier, TransLink then didn't qualify for the emergency funding or any of the federal programs? No, we uh, don't qualify for the uh, wage subsidy program uh, and we had been or still continue to discuss with the federal government the need for transit funding. The Canadian Urban Transit Association has put in formal requests as well, uh, but as yet there's been no federal package forthcoming. If you look in the United States, I mean, their transit agencies were given a $25 billion package. Uh, This is a a real challenge facing the transit industry because our revenue base has effectively collapsed because of uh, reduced fare revenue due to the ridership going down 83% or so. And then there's the other sort of unique factor we have here, which is the gas tax, and that has gone down 60% or so. So we're, we're facing some pretty significant financial headwinds. Uh, there's a long list as well of routes as far as bus service that uh, certain routes that will be suspended, others that the frequency will be reduced. Also looking at that on CBUS, West Coast Express, as, as well as SkyTrain, Canada Line. Uh, are you concerned at all that with people still using transit, clearly not nearly as many, but with people, whether they're essential workers or for whatever reason, still need 
to use transit. By doing this level of reduction, it's going to lead to crowding on the buses and other modes of transit. Yes, we are concerned about that. Um, so there are a number of initiatives we have to try and uh, limit capacity. So our seating arrangements on the buses, for instance, uh, limit capacity on there by 70% when you factor in uh, the no standing provisions. We've installed decals on SkyTrain stations to encourage people to, to distance there. Uh, but we are also asking customers uh, to consider whether they do need to travel on transit. What we definitely do not want to see uh, our full buses and our frontline and essential workers having to wait for extended periods of time. Um, also, I think people will have to start to make some judgments where if a SkyTrain arrives, if it is looking a little bit full, uh, try a different car or perhaps wait for the next train. Um, these are not difficult. These are difficult decisions that we've had to make in terms of service reductions. We don't really want to be reducing service, but of course, when you're losing the amount of money we are losing, uh, these decisions have to be made. Uh, how many executives then are taking pay cuts? Uh, the pay cuts will apply to the uh, five uh, highest paid executives. So it's uh, chief executive, chief financial officer, uh, executive vice president, and the two presidents of the uh, rail and bus company, as well as the board of directors. And I think there's about 10, 10 people so on the board. And is it 10% for everybody? Yes. And how did that? How was that number agreed to? Well, it was a, a discussion that the executives had. Uh, the board implemented that measure on the recommendation of the executive. I think really this is a, a case of leading by example during a very challenging time for the organisation uh, and a challenging time for our employees. And so the executive therefore felt it was appropriate to uh, share some of that burden. Uh, but you're looking at laying off or you're announcing today that 1,500, almost 1,500 workers are laid off completely until further notice. Kevin Desmond makes about a half a million dollars a year. Do you really think that him taking a 10% pay cut is going to lead to people thinking that he's also sharing in some of this burden? Well, I, I think, Jill, it's it's more the case of, of leading by example here. I mean, there's, there's people who, if we did 20%, they'd say, why not 30? Um, so... Um, I think it's a it's a symbolic gesture that's being made by the executives to lead by example uh, and to feel some of the burden because it's not lost on us that this is a really difficult day, not only for the organisation, but in particular those employees who are going to be affected by this. Uh, the uh, union is talking about grieving this, saying that what happened at BC Ferries, uh, there was a grievance. We saw the BC Ferries layoffs rescinded. Uh, are you concerned about the union grieving this? Well, look, we'll have to see. I know they've um, been out publicly. I mean, we, we understand the concerns in terms of service um, and service levels, and we've discussed some of those around crowding, but from the company's perspective, I mean, we've followed the collective agreements and, and given all required notice periods. Most of the employees are going to be given notice periods of four weeks uh, from when they receive the notifications, uh, which are starting from today. Uh, so, you know, we've followed all the, the proper processes. Of course, that doesn't, that doesn't help the situation for those people who are affected. Um, and it's a really tough decision and we're the first ones to acknowledge that uh, for everyone. So we'll see if the, the unions um, want to take any further action. But 
as far as the company's concerned, we have uh, followed proper process and followed the collective agreement. Uh, are there any concerns, this might be a better question for the union, but because it is a union situation and the layoffs will go by seniority, are there any concerns that the bus drivers in particular and those on the front lines that will continue to work will be the older members of the workforce and perhaps the ones that are more at risk of this virus? Uh, look, I mean, I, I guess, you know, we, we've been working with the unions and discussing all of these um, considerations over past days. I, I mean, I think we are doing appropriate steps to protect uh, our employees. And in fact, most of those steps we've worked with the union closely on, things like rear door boarding um, to limit the amount of interactions that uh, drivers have with customers, with limited seating, we've put up um, barriers on, on buses to, to limit that. So we've been taking proactive steps with the union and I know the union's um, publicly been saying, um, you know, that we're sort of in agreement on those measures that have been taken and, and are appropriate to protect our operators. Thanks for being with us today. Well, a Nova Scotia community is reeling, as is much of the country, as we learn more details about a shooting spree. The death toll is continuing to climb today, and RCMP say it could go even higher. What we know at this point is at least 18 people have died, making it the deadliest attack of its kind in this country's history. So what can we take from what we know so far? Let's bring in Neil Boyd. He's a professor at the School of Criminal. Uh, Neil Boyd joins us on the line now. And uh, Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. What do you take from, I mean, there are just so many things. We'll start with the fact that this is somebody who was impersonating a police officer. He was shooting, setting fires from what we've learned today from police. His targets were people he knew as well as people he didn't know. What do you take from that? Well, it's difficult to know precisely what motivates him. Um, I understand the first people he killed, uh, a girlfriend and a and the, the ex-girlfriend and the ex-girlfriend's um, new boyfriend. So perhaps there's some domestic angle to, to this. It's difficult to know. But the arbitrary nature of the killing, um, the interest that he had in policing, cr- basically creating a police car, driving around in a police uniform, um, seems to be a very disturbed individual. We don't know if this is a mental health problem or uh, you know, he's being described as simply evil. I don't think at this point we have very many answers, and I think the RCMP has quite sensibly said that they're you know, um, not going to be able to say much about, about what happened uh, until they investigate further. Does it say something about the, the 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 person, the level of violence in that? Not that that it's ever acceptable or that that it ever makes sense. But this clearly, as we know now, this clearly wasn't somebody who snapped and opened fire. Like you said, he knew he knew you know some were were an, it was an ex girlfriend involved, and, and that level of violence where he's also setting fire to buildings. Yeah, it does seem to be something that was fairly well planned. The fact that it was uh, on an anniversary day of of the um, Oklahoma City bombing and the Waco um, killings, two horrific uh, mass killings in American history, perhaps he had some idea that he would emulate uh, those two individuals, that he would... uh, he would perpetrate a massacre of, of that kind, um, that he would go down in history, I suppose, as, as uh, infamy, as, as someone who um, was able to do this. 
it's a it's a very odd coincidence. Um, it's, it's difficult not to think that there's something to that. And to go to the extremes to the level of making something that appears to be an RCMP vehicle uh, to wearing an RCMP uniform, whether it was a homemade uniform or he somehow managed to get an RCMP uniform. I mean, that seems to show just such a level of premeditation. It does. I mean, I think it's uh, perhaps a little surprising that um, he was known in his neighborhood and uh, by police as um, you know, relatively uneventful person, not not somebody who uh, they were on the lookout for, not somebody who had had a lot of run-ins with people. Um, that's a little unusual in terms of of people who um, commit crimes. But again, this kind of killing, this this kind of premeditated massacre. Um, it's very unlike most homicides. Most homicides take place among people who know each other relatively well. And uh, as you suggested earlier, they are um, quickly accelerated and, and go from an argument to a death in a, in a matter of minutes. Um, these are often people without a lot of social skills um, and without a lot of resources. He seems to differ from that pattern and um, it makes what he did all the more ugly. And I don't think we know this at this point, but I imagine it will become part of what we learn about him as to whether or not he has any kind of record or if he had the firearms involved legally or illegally. Yeah, I would bet that they were probably legally, but I mean, I wouldn't want to to be too confident about that. I mean, he... uh, he doesn't seem to have aroused any suspicion on the part of his neighbors or police in, in all the years that he's lived in that area. He was, you know, for, from all accounts, a relatively well-liked denturist. Um, and uh, beyond that, um, you know, we'll, we're just going to have to wait to see, see what the RCMP is able to unearth. And the fact that an RCMP officer lost her life as well, not that one investigation is more important than another or a life is more important, but this this would be hitting home so much more for the officers involved who are now investigating. I think so. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And the, the pictures of her are very haunting and upsetting uh, to see the magnitude of the loss. Um, as you said earlier, uh, the reality was that he knew some of these people. They were actually friends of his. Uh, there were others that he didn't know. The, the, the arbitrariness of the, of the, and terror of what he did, um, just very difficult to comprehend. Uh, you know, I've, I've interviewed many people who have killed, and uh, I just, I, this kind of person, this kind of killing um, is so out of the ordinary. And fortunately, of course, not that killing is, is any kind of ordinary event itself. Uh, and when you say that, is that because of the, the randomness of the suspects or what, what to you makes it that out of the ordinary? Well, it's out of the ordinary because of the number of people killed. I mean, just a, that, that part of it, but also the, the randomness of the suspects and the, and the fact that there was this mix of people that he knew and that he didn't know. I mean, it, it, it seems um, it's, it's almost unprecedented, you know, the, and, and no clear sense of motive at this point. Um, one speculates that it may have something to do with uh, relationship, and and then he decided. I mean, the the fact that it was on the same day as as the Oklahoma City bombing, as the Waco killings, that suggests that that the planning had something to do with um, killings of this magnitude. He he wanted to um, engage in this kind of activity. 
he he planned this. At least it seems that way. We'll we'll learn more as the days unfold. But uh, uh, but that's so unusual because, as I say, most killings are, you know, even the ones that take place among rival gangs, they know each other. Um, the, the the reason that somebody dies is because they're in a conflict, and and of course we know of of domestic homicides, and we know of uh, killings of business partners, and. Uh, uh, and then killings during a robbery. This is so far afield from uh, from the range of homicide that we typically observe. It is uh, indeed. Uh, Neil Boyd, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk and to try and, and shed some light or get, to, not that you can make sense of this, but to, to get a bit of a better understanding. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Well, as you've likely been hearing in the news, BC is getting more serious about the idea of or cracking down on people who are reselling medical supplies and who are price gouging during this COVID-19 pandemic. We heard on Sunday from Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth saying anybody caught doing that could face an immediate $2,000 fine. There are always those who seek to take advantage of people's fears and those who prey on the collective anxieties of our communities. He says law enforcement in the province, uh, everybody including liquor inspectors, bylaw officers, will be able to issue those fines and the rules will last until the provincial state of emergency is over. Uh, This was a move that caught the Retail Council a little bit off guard. And joining me to talk more about this is the BC Director of Government Relations with the Retail Council of Canada, Greg Wilson. Greg, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. What is your response to hearing that, well, two different things, really. One, the reselling of of supplies, but price gouging as well, that people can be fined $2,000 on the spot. What is your response to that? Well, the um, fine for resellers has been um, part of the provincial order since March 28th. And our experience is that the very few cases of price gouging that have been reported in BC have not been by retailers, but rather by individuals who are reselling materials. Retailers are united in their condemnation of this practice. It's clearly unscrupulous. Uh, Is there any concern that that retailers could be caught up in this? And I just I talk anecdotally with a couple of people who have found gone into a store, say, and found the price of toilet paper is very inflated. But then it turns out that it was the retailer buying it from a different supplier. So it's not really price gouging, even though the price is so much higher. Well, so um, toilet paper is an excellent example. So I'll use your example. Um, And I should note that the obligation, the only new obligation announced yesterday was actually with respect to um, the sale of goods in a retail environment for what's called an unconscionable price. So using toilet paper as an example, um, I would ordinarily go and buy a 24-roll package of toilet paper um, once every few weeks, maybe even once a month or less. And I always, you know, I'm always on the lookout for the best price. So I might buy that at six ninety nine or seven ninety nine on sale, even though the shelf price is something like eighteen ninety nine. So I'm saving myself a lot of money by buying it when it's on sale. And toilet paper is very frequently on sale. So in fact, um, what happened is there was a run on toilet paper, and so to- there were toilet paper shortages. Um, We've been assured by the manufacturers that there's an adequate supply, at least for the time being. 
so it's just a question of this extraordinary demand. Um, and what's happening is people sometimes now aren't being patient and waiting for the sale. Myself, I went to the store on Saturday and saw the toilet paper on sale and bought a package at the sale price. And I actually must say I felt very accomplished of, with that purchase. <laughs> Yeah, who knew that uh, it would uh, there would be that sense of accomplishment uh, in doing in doing what used to be such a mundane task. How do you, how will then bylaw officers or any of the people who have been now been given these powers to issue these fines? Then how do you prove that somebody is price gouging? So this is our criticism of the of the province's regulation. It does not define what an unconscionable price is. It just says this means a price that grossly exceeds the price at which similar essential goods and supplies are available in similar transactions to similar consumers. We're obviously interested in seeing some guidance material to help us define what that is and to help consumers you know, develop an expectation of what price gouging is. Uh, because wouldn't it have to be linked to how much the retailer bought it from their supplier? Well, presumably, not only how much the retailer bought it from their supplier, but there are all sorts of, of course, costs involved in transporting the good and storing the good. Um, in you know, in addition, now we have operational costs that have ballooned, and you know, we're not condemning the increases in operational costs. Clearly, increased security, increased increased cleaning, more protection for our workers and customers are all in order in this crisis. But these are costs that have ballooned. And, you know, retailers are paying for those costs. Those costs have to be borne by the cost of goods. And so, I mean, I think we're hoping that uh, government would understand that, uh, in fact, it's their actions that have led to an amount of the current inflation. And and it seems like there's a bit of mixing it all into one it, retailers and then also people who are reselling things on Craigslist or other social media platforms and trying to make money that way. Well, you know, the the reseller order was in fact on March 28th and the new order on Sunday was about retail retailers. Um as I've said before in the media we were not consulted in advance. We've been having regular meetings with Minister Farnworth's officials going back to the earliest days of the crisis. These meetings have been about the supply chain. At first, because of the initial consumer panic, government wanted us to impose limits on the quantities of goods people could purchase. Then later on, dairy farmers and egg farmers um, were anxious about an oversupply of their products. And so government was asking us to remove the very limits that they asked us to put in. All of this has been happening in a cooperative process. And at no time ever has government, through all of those conversations, mentioned any concern about price gouging in a retail environment. Had they raised that concern, we would have been reaching out to the retailer in question immediately to investigate and get to the source of the problem. It so, wouldn't have required an emergency order. Right. So at this point, you haven't heard of any retailers that have even been warned of this? Well, um, so far, early days, um, the the reaction has mostly been from consumers who've been making allegations. And in fact, the most frequent allegation is about the cost of toilet paper. 
Because there have been cases of of toilet paper in what people have found. Uh, It was at a couple of different grocery stores, people uh, tweeting about it, putting it on social media, saying it was, you know, upwards, it was north of $25 a package. Well, you know, I think people will know. I think people who read the tags will know, and uh, a lot of us don't read tags as well as we used to. But, you know, prices for 24 pack of toilet paper have been just under $20 for some time, the regular price. As I said, I don't, I'm not accustomed to buying it at that price. I expect most consumers aren't either. They're buying it at the sale price. Our industry is focused on getting good deals from the manufacturer and passing on the best price always to consumers. It's a competitive, retail is a very competitive business and our members are in the business of getting consumers the best price for everyday goods. Are there any concerns or do you have concerns then given this new order and the focus on retail? Would a retailer then be in the position of, okay, maybe I can get toilet paper or hand sanitizer, but I'm getting it from a different supplier, which means my price is going to get up or is going to go up. Do you then worry about, am I going to get called out on social media? Am I going to be a price gouger, be called one, or is it better just to leave the shelf empty? Well, I think this is a concern that you're going to see retailers wrestling with. And I think this is why government producing some guidance material to help both retailers and consumers understand what their intention is would be helpful. Because if we have some understanding of what price gouging is, we can better define the prices to our customers and consumers will have a better understanding of what to expect. The organizer of the annual, usual annual event uh, that we see on Sunset Beach, Dana Larson, is going to be Linda Steele's guest today. What time? Yes, you guessed it, right at 4.20. We are going to take a look at social media and uh, the fact that it actually is helping people be more social in this time of physical distancing. And uh, Dr. Matthew Fleisfeder, who is an associate professor of rhetoric, writing and communications at the University of Winnipeg joins us now to talk a little bit more about that. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, People, I think we've talked about this, people who had never heard of Zoom before are now actively using it to touch in, to touch base with people and to see the faces of people that they cannot see in person any longer. That, uh, as well as many other uh, types of social media, have become really important for people. What's your take on how we've seen uh, these social media devices actually make us social? Yeah, so I think that, I mean, when the the COVID crisis broke out and a lot of us turned online, not only for work, but also to meet up with friends and family and to see people that we, you know, because of physical distancing and social distancing, we can't really get together. A lot of us have moved all of our social activities online. But I I think that what the, the crisis is really bringing out is something that I think many of us feel but haven't been able to articulate, and that's that social media really does, in many ways, make us social. And I, and I think that's worth pointing out because a lot of the, the discourse, a lot of the, the, the popular idea about social media and technology and video games is that it always makes us anti-social. I think that what we're seeing right now is that it's not the, the technology, not the media that makes us anti-social, but it's the context in which our media are being used. So right now, I think we're very much seeing how social media can help us to enhance um, our ability to be social, but then it's worth questioning what does make us antisocial? What are the causes of our antisocial behavior um, online and in, in, in other forms of media? So that's something that I'm very interested in. 
Well, is it something too that we're forced to, whereas you may have used social media in the past to just check out pictures and kind of see what people were doing. Uh, many people are now forced to use it because they're working from home, they're working remotely, and they actually do need to connect with people. Absolutely. And I think that, I mean, we have to, you know, weigh out the, the, the you know, the, the benefits of our social media. On the one hand, absolutely, it's helping us to be much more social with our friends and our family that we're distanced from in the moment. But I think we also have to be careful when we're thinking about how technology, it may, on the one hand, it looks like it's helping us out um, with our work. But for a lot of us, especially, you know, parents and caregivers, it's bringing a lot of our work more so into the home. And this is something that a lot of uh, feminist scholars, for instance, for decades have talked about the double shift. The more that um, women are entering into the workforce, the more um, the, the, the double duties of care and work are adding on. I think we're seeing that extended very much in the context right now where work through Zoom and other types of social media or social technologies are actually creating a larger work burden in the space of the home. And I think we have to think about how during this time we have to prioritize um, things like care and our health um, a little bit over, over work. Now, all of us, of course, we need to work, but we have to think about how to slow down the work rather than increase it because technology is entering the home. And what about uh, the, the idea of, I've heard several people question this, going, what would we be doing if we didn't have this technology? No, it's a very good question. I mean, I don't know if it's, uh, it's um, the right way to pose it. I mean, I think, you know, 100 years back, Spanish flu, of course, you know, what are people doing? probably spending time with family and loved ones in the home or um, um, <laughs> um, other ways of uh, passing the time, playing games. But I think we have to consider the ways in which our culture has, you know, very much adapted to being social in new and different ways um, than in times prior to this type of technology. I think that it's a good opportunity for us to see how the, the, the infrastructure of our media and our social technologies are really a, a public benefit, a social benefit and that the, the, the negative impacts of it um, are really the, the, uh, the amplification of other types of antisocial dimensions of our culture, such as the individualism and the competitiveness that comes out of a, of a culture based primarily on market principles. And what about the idea as well that we're so quick to give up our privacy to not question if what if, if you're downloading something for free, if you're using something free, clearly the company isn't doing this out of the goodness of their hearts, that there is there's mm. another reason for that. Are we too quick to, to not even question that? I think, I mean, it's a difficult question. I think a lot of people are questioning um, um, forms of surveillance um, and uh privacy concerns. It's a very difficult situation because a lot of the technology that we rely on right now for our everyday way of life, for the way we gather information, for our communications with each other, we're very reliant on the technology. So again, when we're talking about issues of surveillance and privacy, I think we have to put it into the context of who is in charge, who is, who is on the back end of the platform, how is our information being used and for what purposes? Is it being used for purposes for instance, to understand um, 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 statistical data about the population, or is our information being used for practices of manipulation? When it comes to that kind of question, I think we have to look at who's in the driver's seat controlling the, the platforms that we're using.
Do you think there will be permanent changes to how we use social media after we once we go back to where we actually can go into the workplace uh, like we were doing before and we can meet with people and go out like we were before? It's a very good question. I'm glad that you're asking it. I mean, one thing that we're seeing is that, especially for people with disabilities, let's say, we're seeing that for, for a long time, people have been told that they can't work from home. Um, I think that what we're seeing right now is, no, absolutely, it is possible. And I think that that's one way to think about increasing um, accessibility uh, for a lot of people that have, uh, are facing certain kinds of barriers. But now we're seeing that technology and social technologies are actually helping people out um, in ways that um, weren't really as widely discussed before. I think that going forward, um, after the situation we're dealing with right now, it's possible to think about uh, social media in another new way. So beyond just the often the discourse, the technology is causing us to be antisocial, the technology is the problem. I think that we can turn things around and say, well, no, the technology is actually giving us a prism for understanding some of the other flaws and contradictions and problems that do exist in the, 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 the culture um, and the politics of our society. All right. Uh, we will leave it there, but a very interesting uh, take on this and how it's uh, making us, in some cases, more social. Uh, Dr. Fleisfeder, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Right now, though, let's talk a little bit about talking to your children or children in general about COVID-19. Julie Romanofsky is a misbehavior parenting coach. Uh, sorry, let me start that again. Misbehavior parenting coach and consulting services. Julie has been on the program many times before and joins us once again. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, glad to be here with you, Jill. Are you getting a lot of questions from parents wanting to know the best way to talk to their kids? Yes, I've got a flood of calls coming in. I thought I would be uh, out of work and chilling at home, but no, work's been uh, busy and and a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, just in general from parents and then with with their children as well and questions and what ifs and, you know, it's just been crazy. Uh, And so what is the biggest concern as far as uh, parents talking to their kids about COVID-19? From a child's point of view, they want to know what this is. They know it's called COVID-19 and Corona and it's a virus and we got to stay at home. But And they get the little pieces, the, the details that way. But they aren't understanding the whole concept and how this is affecting us globally and the economy and our lifestyles and work. And so a lot of uh, pointers, the parents want to know pointers on how to sort of navigate conversations with their children of all ages of the sort of the greater, bigger picture of what's going on. Because I would imagine it's pretty difficult for somebody who says six or seven or eight and you're not in school, mm-hmm. you you know there's this virus, but yeah, you might not know all the all the details of it, but making that connection on there's a virus and I'm not allowed to play with my friends. Yes. That's that's the extent of it for most kids in school. And, and that's that's all they know. And it's like, okay, is this done yet? Even my son, just the other day, is like, okay, can I go play with my neighbor kid and, and or neighbor friend? And he's like, are we done with this yet? In sort of frustration. I was like, no, we don't know when it's done. And without really understanding the concept and sort of when the end date is, that fear of the unknown, that question mark is what's really getting to everybody and ramping up anxiety and worry and overwhelm. Is there so a, con- a lot of... Mm-hmm. I was just wondering, is there a concern too that the kids of a certain age are going to grow up being complete germaphobes now? 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think so. No, because uh, for me and in, in my experience and what I know and including personal experience, my germophobia back in the day came from high anxiety. It was just an outlet for my anxiety to come out. Um, there, I wasn't sick. I wasn't around sick germy people, you know, and it was just a fixation in my own mind. I'm over that now. But with COVID-19 and, and spreading of the virus, I don't see it being that way, but I do see people... Uh, families taking precautions and changing their lifestyles to ensure for more, more sort of in healthier ways and preventative ways. But I don't think everyone's going to be walking around with gloves and a mask even after this is over out of fear. <laughs> that, that, that is a good thing. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, is there a concern on, on how much news kids should be exposed to? Because it is wall to wall coverage of COVID-19 with daily news conferences. How much or how much of a balancing act is that to make sure your kids kind of know what's going on, but not to inundate them with news? Yeah. You know what? I think that's that I would apply that to everybody, adults included. Uh, we, we are being inundated by news, and of course we need the facts. We need to know what's going on. Same with the updates and the way the media is handling it. It's been wonderful, but like you said, it's wall-to-wall. We have to know when to press pause, to stop, to take a break. And so one of the suggestions I've, I've used um, and have, have spoken about is pick a time of day. Maybe you're the morning person, you're an evening person with the news. Pick a time of day, if you can, the hour, stick to that. Don't watch it all day long. Uh, maybe you want to just watch the news through various um, you know, social media sites and things like that on your phone. Whatever you choose, just stick to one time of day if you can and make it brief. Like put a time limit on there. Otherwise, it'll just keep going and going and going. Um, maybe you want to check in for five minutes a few times a day, and that's okay. But try to develop a bit of a routine with it. Otherwise, it's a slippery slope, and next thing you know, we're just, you know, in constant fear of, you know, all this stuff that's going on. And then when it comes to kids, they don't necessarily have to watch it every single day, but maybe have a debrief with them every day. Hmm. So, again, maybe in the morning, maybe in the evening, maybe after you watch your, the news yourself as the parent, and just say, hey, just to let everybody know uh, they've they've gotten the go-ahead for this or Ooh, we've got a few more cases in this city. So just wanted to let you guys know and give them a quick couple of phrases. But to have younger children sitting with you and watching the news all day long, I would not recommend that. It isn't good for our mental health. And we will be notified as needed in some format, not to worry. <laughs> the media's got that covered and to just be really careful and mindful of that. And just one other question about technology, because I would imagine there are parents grappling with screen time, and in the, mm. you might have had rules about that, strict rules about that in the past. Now if you're learning at home or <laughs> you just want to play your kid to play a game and forget about things, uh, relaxing those rules. Yeah, it really has. It's interesting. Um, I've spoken about that one as well, and, and it's inevitable. We're all on our screens more than ever before, all rules have gone out the window for screen use because life's completely different. And um, so one thing I've put out there is uh, my one-for-one one rule. And for one, every one hour you're on a screen, whether that's learning for school or, you know, you know, watching a movie, iPad, whatever it is, you spend one hour in nature. So one-for-one. One. one hour of screen time equals one hour in nature. You want to be on your screen for eight hours? Great. Then go outside for eight hours, you know, and balance it out. It's good for the brain. It's good for our mental health. 
So I wouldn't be stuck on how many minutes of screen time everyone's getting at this point. I would just focus on balancing it with being out in nature, getting fresh air, sunshine, and exercise, and more focus on something like that for now. All right. That is good advice. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks, Jill.